to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 31, Proverbs 31. Got a few uh, graduates to recognize this morning. And um, looks like uh, those, Angela has those cards, but Grace and Stephen and Gabby want to recognize you and celebrate the achievement that the Lord has allowed you uh, to experience. And uh, we're so thankful for you. Joshua, could you stay here? I, got, I, wanna, I wanna do something for you too. Can we have, come here real quick. Let's do, let's do like, you trust me, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like. <laughs> um, today's my pastor, but not my friend. Yeah, I, I, I got you, I got you. Uh, in spite of all of his casual appearances, he actually really likes things organized. And so this is freaking him out a little bit right now. But uh, um, I just want to tell you thank you for everything that you do for our church. Um, completely free of any expectation of compensation or gratitude or anything. You just power through every single week. And I just want to thank you for that. And it's your birthday today. And um, um, how old are you now? I'm 27. 27, yeah, man. So how old were you when you first started going to this church? Mom? Uh, let's see. Five? Five? So you've been here, you've been here, you know, for 22 years, um, participating in one way or another. And when we sing our songs, some of our songs we choose intentionally have kind of a generational focus. And one of our kind of hallmarks as a church is we're unapologetically focused on families. And so I, I, I wanted to bring that to light. Uh, we had planned to recognize you not knowing it was your birthday. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that's reassuring. God, thank you. <laughs> God works it out. But I thought, you I know, here's that. a young man who's now every single week serving, working pretty hard to lead us in worship. And this is a guy who has been in, in this body really his whole life. So I think that's something to commend. I want to commend you personally, but also the idea itself it's it's yeah. just it's a beautiful thing so we've got a few things for you here some oh, we've got some prizes and uh some cash and uh just just it's all worth it keep the cash away from <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> this and is not enough for that but <laughs> I, yeah. anyway thank you very much Well, Proverbs 31, chapter, uh, thir Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to, stay, to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So I think there is uh, something bigger going on in this text than good counsel about sexual sin and alcohol abuse. But these are things that I think we should think about a little bit. So I do want to cover them briefly. First of all, related to Lemuel's mother's chastisement over his giving his strength to women, I read something very interesting this week I wanted to pass on to you. In verse 3, she says, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. There was, back in the 1930s, an anthropologist who had a lot of sympathies with Freudian uh, psychological theory. Freud uh, is known in part for his thoughts related to sexual repression. But what others may not realize is that he was interested in not only the negative sides of what he would call sexual repression, but also the positive potential outcomes. And he postulated 
during his work that there may be some benefit to sexual repression. And J.D. Irwin was an anthropologist who was sympathetic to Freud and thought, you know, I'm an anthropologist, let me see if I can figure this out. And so I just want to read something that he wrote back in the 1930s. After he did a survey of over 300 civilizations, he reached an interesting conclusion. The evidence that is that in the past, a class has risen to a position of political dominance because of its great energy, and that at that period of its rising, its sexual regulations have always been strict. It has retained its energy and dominated the society so long as its sexual regulations have demanded both prenuptial and postnuptial continence. Continence just meaning control. I know of no exceptions to these rules. So he studied 300 civilizations and discovered that one of the prevailing themes of civilizational excellence, of empires rising, is a period of time in which the leaders of those empires practiced both pre- and post-nuptial sexual faithfulness. And then he writes, these societies lived in different geographical environments, they belonged to different racial stocks, but the history of their marriage customs is the same. In the beginning, each society had the same ideas in regard to sexual regulations, same ideas being basically anything goes. Then the same struggles took place, the same sentiments were expressed, the same changes were made, the same results ensued. Each society reduced its sexual opportunity to a minimum, which he really means is monogamy, and displaying great social energy flourished greatly. Then it extended its sexual opportunity and its energy decreased and faded away. There is one outstanding feature of the whole story and that is its unrivaled monotony. And what he means by monotony there is there are no exceptions. Every single case he studied shows this point that he's making. Now there's two things I wanna draw your attention to rather quickly and this is literally just as a side sort of entrance into the text itself. The first one is make of that what you will about where our future as a country is headed. Might be a good time to pray. Secondly, this excellence, this organizational institutional excellence applies across all institutions, including the home. So that if you want something to flourish and be stable and grow, obeying King Lemuel's mother is the way to do that. And the, the, the kind of the, another larger point that I want to drop in your head is, is it's so interesting the way that God gives us truth. So what, what I read to you was an anthropologist who studied 300 civilizations in the 1930s coming to a conclusion in a very different way of talking about it, actually starting from a very different place altogether, from a very anti-God perspective insofar as his connection to Freud goes. It's very interesting to me how we read this little line written from a mother to her son, and it contains all of the wisdom that this expansive study of an esteemed anthropologist provides. And I want to make a point to you. We are fools when we sleep on the sufficiency of Scripture. We are fools when we sleep on the sufficiency of Scripture. What this man had to do over an expansive study and over a great deal of abstraction and so forth, is contained in yet a, in a single verse communicated from a mother to a son. And if we are ever too prideful to listen to the way that the word of God tells us the truth, we are too prideful at our own great peril. So I want you to see just generally the beauty of scripture, the beauty of God's truth, the way that it is communicated to us in a way that always winds up being proven right. And I also want you to see just as, as a reminder, and we've talked about this plenty in our series through Proverbs, that there is a one-to-one -one correlation between the prosperity of a home, a church, a country, and its commitment to sexual fidelity. And so I want to remind you of that because, as you'll see in a moment, those opportunities to degrade ourselves, to degrade our families, to degrade our churches, to degrade our country. They're everywhere. So let's just be reminded. Number two, um, I want to talk a quick bit about alcohol. In verse four through five, it says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, 
lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. And so I do want to, this is actually a substantial theme in the book of Proverbs, and we haven't touched it yet. And if we were an entirely teetotaling church, I wouldn't need to touch on it, but we're not, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's a good thing, I think. But I do need to communicate some things to you, some guardrails, especially to you younger people, about alcohol that the Word of God, in fact, communicates. Now, before I do that, I want to be clear that none of this should be taken as an attempt on my behalf to reduce the bar bill at my daughter's wedding this weekend. Right? So I'm not like sneaking in a little word to lower. It's already been paid for, guys. Drink up. Like from that perspective, you're fine. This just happened to be the text we're in this week, and I promise you it's already been paid for, and I'm looking forward if you do drink a beer or something to do that. But I do think, especially because it is an issue for our particular culture, where that is a part of some get-togethers and so forth, and I do think in particular young people who probably never grew up under the instruction of what I did, which was just a straight, hardcore, teetotaling Southern Baptist who also had a low-key problem with gluttony, but that's another thing. Um, I grew up hearing these warnings all the time, and you, you, many of you may have not, and it's good to be warned. It's good, it's good to receive instruction. It's good to hear from God on how to use the things that he's given us. So let me, let me do that for you right now. The, the Proverbs are pretty full with communications about concerns related to drink, but also there are plenty of passages in Proverbs that celebrate it. Okay, um, Wisdom herself comes with mixed wine. And I think it's chapter 8. But let me read the warning. I'm only going to go on the negative side. I'm not going to do a, a, a middle-of-the-road thing here. I'm just going to give you all of the warnings. Uh, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 32, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. In fact, last night as I was going to bed, as I was actually in bed, I read a tweet from Jordan Peterson where he writes, alcohol is the only drug of abuse we know that makes people both aggressive and stupidly fearless. And then he writes, and that's fun, but it's toxic. And he says, I'm surprised by these numbers, Um, grain of salt time, but he says 50% of all murderers are drunk, as are 50% of their victims. Maybe. Proverbs 31, 4 through 7. In that little verse that we read just a moment ago, Lemuel's mother warns him, saying, in verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. I'm not going to talk about the back end of that very much, but I would like to say that some of you just need to stop thinking your life is as hard as it is and that somehow you need a drink at the end of the day. It's like, you've got a really nice life. It's like, like you're, you're not in this section here. There's no, there's no need to any of that. But let me talk about the first half. Um, The emphasis in this text when dealing with the issue of alcohol is on the word forget. And the meaning of that word in the Hebrew carries the idea of something leaving the forefront of your mind, which is very interesting if you know anything about the brain and about, about where our higher reasoning is and so on and so forth. That's pretty much the warning you need to hear. It's related to this idea of forget. So here's how I would explain it to you, and I hope this is helpful. There are ideas that you do believe in, but they occupy a particular part of your brain. And those ideas are like duty and honor and responsibility and fidelity, okay? Let's say that those ideas, they're, they're yours, you believe them, and they are in a particular part of your brain. There are other ideas that are also yours, 
and they're in a different part of your brain, and, and those ideas are novelty-seeking and sexual interest and speaking your mind and so on and so forth. So you've got these two value centers in different parts of your mind. And the thing is, is that they work, they can coexist, but it's a delicate balance even when you are sober, right? So you've got these, these somewhat antagonistic, and I think God made us this way, tensions between re being reserved and careful and thoughtful and being unrestrained and bold and aggressive. You've got these two sections of your brain now, what you need to know about alcohol, this is kind of how the Bible teaches it in its winsome, you know, old kind of way of speaking. What you need to know about alcohol is that alcohol does not impair both of those parts of your brain equally. This is the basic, this is what I would tell a 20-year-old about alcohol. Alcohol impairs, you know that, but it does not impair both of those value centers equally. It actually impairs the center that holds commitments to dignity and fidelity and honor far before it impairs those centers focused on novelty-seeking, curiosity, boldness, adventure, so on and so forth. So what you need to understand about alcohol is that it's not just putting your whole brain to sleep. It's putting the part of your brain to sleep that is mostly oriented around honor and duty. And it'll be a lot longer down the road of drinking before the other part shuts off too. Eventually you do wind up unconscious on the bathroom floor. If, if, if it all happened evenly, then it would just be a dumb thing to do. But because it doesn't happen evenly, it's a dangerous thing to do, right? So you need to know that. You need to understand that if you're if you're going to have a relationship with alcohol where it's not just complete abstinence, if you're going to drink, you need to understand what is actually happening. You're getting an uneven impairment and the things that are being impaired are the things that are most likely to protect your dignity, honor, and so on and so forth. And so Lemuel's mother is laying down a good principle for us all. It's basically this. The more important your judgment is, because she's saying this is not a thing kings can do. Here's the, here's the principle behind that. The more important your judgment is, the more sober you must be. The more significant your judgment is, the less drinking you should do. And for almost all of us, there are periods of time when our judgment isn't necessary and we're okay and we're in a safe and non-threatening place and so on and so forth. And then there are other instances where our judgment is everything. And so you need to use discernment. And here's how I would communicate this. It's, first of all, it is not coincidental that these two sins we see Lemuel struggling, struggling with, I hate that word sometimes, committing. Uh, it's not coincidental that these two are related. Sexual sin and drunkenness. Let's be clear about that. Number two, let's, let's just lay down some basic rules, just old guy to younger guy kind of rules. The first one is there are some environments that the world has actually designed to facilitate the impairment of judgment. You don't need to be there at all, whether you're drinking or not. If an environment is obviously designed to make you less prone to being wise, you would be violating everything you've learned in the book of Proverbs to electively go to those places. So if you're in those environments, if you find yourself in those environments, definitely don't be drinking. If you're on a business trip alone without your spouse or at a work party without your spouse, don't be drinking. Wherever you need to have peak judgment, make sure in those moments you listen to Lemuel's mom. And those are not the times to drink. Okay? So now let's move on to the main idea of the text. And I'm just entitling this main idea of the text the problem of Pleasure Island or breaking free from Pleasure Island. Let me give you some concepts and I want you to see if you can, if you can hear the, the similarities. What do the Hakuna Matata Oasis and Lion King, Pleasure Island and Pinocchio, Neverland and Peter Pan, the distant land from the Prodigal Son story, and Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress all have in common? 
These are places that seem designed to keep a man from fulfilling his mission. What do these things have in common? These are places that seem designed to keep a man from fulfilling his mission. Now, why did I think of all those places when I was reading this text? Because I have ADD. No. That's only partly the answer. It's basically always partly the answer for everything I do, just so you know. Why did I think of those places when I read this text? Let's read this text again. The, kings of the, king, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him, verse 2. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So this text is representing the very same things that all of those places I referenced a moment ago represent. There are places that we wind up in life that I'll just from here to four label as Pleasure Island. There are places we wind up in life that are more or less designed to keep us from fulfilling the mission that God has given us. There are places that are more or less designed to keep us from fulfilling the mission that God has given us. There's a few things that all of these stories have in common and one important thing they don't, so let me get through those. First, as I've said above, these are all places designed to keep a man from fulfilling his mission. Let me pause there. There's nothing specifically um, gender-oriented about anything I'm saying, using man in the most broad sense. It's, it's the men and women, we're all in the same boat here. It's not always the case when we read God's word, so I just wanted to make that clear. Number two, another thing they all have in common is that they involve a tarnishing of God's glory. A God, sorry, I said that wrong. They, they involve tarnishing a person's God-given glory. They involve tarnishing a person's God-given glory. Simba goes from a trajectory of being a king of the jungle to a bug eater. Or he goes from being a carnivore to a vegetarian. Either way, it's a terrible fall. <laughs> Sorry, some of you are going to be mad at me. Just deal with it. You know who I am. You know I couldn't resist. Well, that's almost exactly the same thing that happened to the prodigal son in terms of eating. Right? He, he gets to a point so low, he is so tarnished from his original grandeur as a son of a wealthy man that he begins coveting the slop provided by the pigs. And then, of course, in the story of Pinocchio, he has, this will really grab your guts if you're not walking right with the Lord right now, Pinocchio had received the incredible gift of being made alive. And then almost wasted it all on Pleasure Island, where, as he indulged, he became less like the thing his father dreamed he would be and more like a donkey. So one of the things these all have in common is, is that they all, there are these places that you go to be distracted or deterred or even kept from fulfilling your God-given mission, and when you're there, they kind of remove some of the God-given glory that he has assigned you, of course, only through his grace. In our text, Lemuel is supposed to be a king, and he is engaging in just based living that is keeping him from fulfilling his mission, not only to be a king, but a particular kind of king, because there are plenty of kings who do everything Lemuel's doing, but he is supposed to be the kind of king who declares justice for the poor and cares for the weak. And instead, he's just in this little pleasure island of self-indulgence. There's a third thing all these places have in common, and that is, is that they all involve um, people, you being with people that you think are friends. There's really none of these stories where the person is alone. They're only alone at the very end, if they're ever alone, when they have fully been tarnished, like the prodigal son. 
But for the most part, one of the features of these stories is, is that you're not actually alone. And one of the many reasons why people wind up going to Pleasure Island is because they're so afraid to walk alone. I was talking to someone this week about marriage. It's like, you've got to get comfortable. I was talking, it was a man. You've got to get comfortable having your wife not be in agreement with you and you walking with God. You've got to get comfortable you walking with God. You cannot be so afraid of being alone relationally because if you are, you can't lead. And so this Pleasure Island thing is like, there's lots of people there who will keep me company and I won't feel so alone. That's another feature. Another feature is that in many of these cases, while they all bear responsibility, there's some trickery afoot. There's some deception at hand. You know, Simba's not entirely understanding what's been done to him at this stage. Pinocchio is actually involved in a full-blown conspiracy. Another thing that's, and this is very interesting, that, they, that many of them have in common, there is a kind of feminine righteousness that appears that calls these boys to reject pure hedonism and return to their hero's journey. That's interesting. What's the, what's the girl lion's name in Disney? Nala? Yeah, like, it's an interesting idea. And it shows up with the blue fairy in, in Pinocchio as well. It's an interesting idea that there's a, a, a righteous femininity that appears and speaks to these boy, these, these uh, man-childs and calls them out of pure hedonism and back onto the trajectory of their hero's journey. And in this particular case, it's Lemuel's mother who I think, this is a story, I, I don't think she taught him, this to him in advance. I think she is intervening in a situation. I think, she's, when, I think when it says in verse two, what are you doing, my son? She's not projecting out into the future. She's going to a young man who's supposed to be king and saying, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Now, we don't usually cover this part of Proverbs 31 when we're in Proverbs 31, but let's just make something known here or plain. The whole chapter is a display of feminine righteousness. The whole chapter, not just the second half with the woman ordering food from ships. You know, I'm kind of like, you know, that may be heroic or it may just be called Uber Eats. I'm not sure. But uh, the whole chapter is, is feminine righteousness. God honoring feminine righteousness. Now, I want to contrast that to one of the major problems we've got in the world today. There's a psychological phenomenon that's especially pathological called Munchausen by proxy. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea. Essentially, it's a deeply sinful and, and sick practice where a parent, almost always a mother, convinces the child that he or she is sick or even makes the child sick with poison so that the mother can fulfill her own narcissistic need to be needed. It's a, it's a real thing. It's a, it's a tragic thing. It's really what's going on in almost all of the conversations related to transgenderism in children. It's a narcissistic parents who have a need to be needed at an exceedingly cruel, way, cruel level. Now, there's a much more common form of that toxic mothering that expresses itself in overprotectiveness and excessive compassion and tenderness. And what I want to point out to you is that's not the kind of woman who helps the man get back on his hero's journey. The kind of woman who intervenes and gets the man back on his heroic journey is what we see with Lemuel's mom. We have a stern mother Embracing righteous femininity, and righteous femininity is almost always most evidenced by empowering masculine responsibility. And so that's another thing that they have in common. Now let's talk about the thing they don't have in common that's disturbing. In all of those other stories, Pleasure Island is somewhere out there. Okay, so in all of those other stories, you've got to leave home and choose to go over there to Pleasure Island. 
in our proverb, Pleasure Island is in the palace. Okay, so it's not that it's somewhere you wind up at if you really try and go looking for it. It's somewhere you wind up at if you don't intentionally avoid it. Pleasure Island is the palace itself. And I think that's a far more accurate representation of the kind of world you and I live in today. We, we don't need to engage in geographical escapism to engage in escapism. Escapism is being portaled into our lives through a variety of means. So Pleasure Island for us isn't out there somewhere. It's on the couch in front of the TV, it's in the refrigerator, it's in the liquor cabinet, it's on the phone, it's in the video game, it's on the computer. We don't have to go looking anymore for Pleasure Island, it's right there. Now, that's a very important thing to think about because I think the main idea of this text, because I think the chapter is organized to show sort of a, a righteous, things righteous women do, something like that. The main idea, I think, of these nine verses is that we have to help each other stay off of Pleasure Island. And we have to help each other get out of Pleasure Island. I think that's the main idea. What is being commended to us here is Lemuel's mother and how she notices someone she loves being caught up in a cycle and being brought to a place that is designed to keep him from being who God has decided he should be. Now, you've heard the phrase, I'm not your mother. In some ways, and I don't have time to support it deeply here, but in some ways, theologically, the church is a kind of mother to the saints. There's an idea that, this is an idea that Roman Catholics have taken too far, but at the root, it's essentially a biblical notion. In fact, one way to read Proverbs 31 is to understand that the woman fit for the king from verses 10 down is the church, the bride of Christ. As she goes out into the world and adorns the gospel with all of these amazing good works, which should take some pressure off you ladies. Like maybe it's mostly about the bride, the one fit for the king. No, I, I think that that idea that the church has a mothering posture is actually, can be a biblical one, so long as by mothering we don't mean Munchausen doting. But we mean what we see here. This is the main idea I want to present to you. In this nine verses, these nine verses, we have a blueprint for godly life-on-life life encouragement and exhortation for those of us who are caught on Pleasure Island or look like we might be headed there. Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, 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 an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what we see Lemuel's mom doing. That's what Lemuel's mom's doing. And I would argue that that is not something that only moms do or only dads do, but that is, based on what I just read in Hebrews, something all Christians do for one another. Lemuel's mom is indeed being a good mom, but she could just as easily have been a sister, a brother, a father, or a friend because the thing she's doing is just an expression of love. It's just an expression of faith-filled, spirit-led, truth-oriented love. And because Pleasure Island isn't out there somewhere, but it's actually in our living rooms and, every, and on our phones and so on, because it's not out there somewhere, we have to take these words in Hebrews to heart and be diligent in helping one another and caring for one another and praying for one another and saying, what are you potentially engaged in that is keeping you from fulfilling the mission God has given you? What sort of traps are you potentially headed to that will tarnish the God-given call that he's placed on your life? The heart of what she's doing is simply this. She has more respect. This is the key. This is what I think a, 
See, sometimes, you know, the whole Christian life runs on faith. The weird thing about faith is it can be borrowed in the short term. Sometimes I can have faith for you when you don't. And I can walk with you and I can give you my faith for you for a minute. And eventually that faith has to be your faith. But that's actually what parenting is in some respects, right? Um, sometimes I can lend you some faith. And what we see in Lemuel, Lemuel's mom, I think is the peak expression of what it means to be a Christian sibling, a brother or sister in Christ, is she has more respect for what he's called to become than he does. She is comparing his current trajectory with his God-given destiny, and she is alarmed. He is not. She is alarmed for him because she sees the goodness of what God's called him to, how necessary what God's called him to is to the world. And she's not going to let this all just sort of happen. Now, how do we apply this? Here's something I wrote that I thought might be good enough to put on the screen. If you love someone and you are really their friend, you won't tempt them to tarnish their God-given glory. You won't be the relational equivalent of alcohol to them. You won't tempt them to abandon their sense of duty and honor for the sake of indulgence. Rather, you will fortify their sense of duty and honor and encourage them to engage in God's mission for their life. You will help them be a king or queen. And again, I'm aware of the many abuses of calling each other kings and queens is. I'm also aware of a number of scriptures that essentially say, and we will reign upon the earth with him forever. If you really love someone, you won't be the alcohol to them that impairs their sense of duty and honor. And you, you, will, you won't be the alcohol to them, you'll be the coffee. You'll be the Taco Bell. You will help wake them up out of the delirium of Pleasure Island and say, listen, God has great things for you and the world needs you to show up. Let me help you show up. If you love someone and you're really their friend, you won't coddle them when they need to be confronted. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So there's, there's a kind of person who is exceedingly defensive when you would, if you see them on Pleasure Island, they're exceedingly defensive. Here's what I would argue. Leave them alone. Just leave them alone. You know what the verse that comes after this verse is? Verse 27 of Proverbs 27. The one who is full loathes, hung, loathes, loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. These two verses are connected. We're in that particular section of Proverbs where we get these couplets like this, structurally. What's that saying? It's saying, as we're going to go to the Beatitudes after this, it's saying that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will receive godly confrontation and see, even though it's bitter, they'll say it's sweet because you've helped me get off Pleasure Island. You've helped me escape this circle of futility. So if, you, if someone's hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they can still be caught in sin. They can still be confused. They could still be blind to the, the course of their lives. And you can go to that person who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness and you can confront them and it will be bitter and they will think it's sweet. But you can go to another person who is full of themselves. They don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are righteousness. Their feelings are righteousness. Their opinions are righteousness. Their plans are righteousness. And you give them the sweetest confrontation you could possibly offer, and they will complain, calling it bitter. So one of the things that I think we have to do to recover our congregational posture of caring for one another is to know that the people who are um, defensive aren't really one of us. We, we can't... We can't customize our entire way of doing Christianity around the people who are full of themselves. We've got to, we've got to live for one another, those of us who, who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I, I don't mean to brag about myself. It's kind of not a brag. But a guy in the congregation about two months ago texted me and said, I'm praying for you. Uh, I was like, you know, that's always like, okay, thank you. And uh, then, he, you know, this is the next text. This is the next text. I noticed you've lost some weight. What can I do to help you lose more weight? Now, the part where this may be construed as a brag is I took that as sweet. Why? Because this is a problem in my life that I've been battling and fighting and trying for and, and sinning in and trying, you know, it's a real thing. And I, I really don't want to dishonor God in this area. It doesn't mean that I successfully win, but I don't want to dishonor God in this area. And so someone that could come to me and say that to me, it felt sweet to me. It felt like I have someone with me. I have someone who, I have a Lemuel's mom who is, who is ready to walk with me. But friends, there's, you, would, you know full well that that's not necessarily the way that many people would respond to that text. And you would say, you would love to create all these conditions and say, well, were they winsome? And are they really close friends? And do they have access? And were you ready? And was it a good time? It's like, honestly, guys, we're making this more complicated than we need to. This is sort of the commencement ceremony from the book of Proverbs. And I would just summarize a lot of this as if they want to, they will. There are people who want wisdom and there are people who don't. There are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will be filled. And so one of the things we need to see is like, okay, we're all going to be in this situation where we're kind of flirting around with Pleasure Island. And boy, it is a sweet thing to have people in our lives who will lemuel mamas and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? This, is, this trajectory is not in line with the great mission God has called you to. So that's what we see as a, as a kind of just overall idea. And I just want to leave you with two practical things. Number one, notice the appeal to relational authority. Look at verse two. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Uh, it could just as easily be, what are you doing, my brother in Christ? What are you doing, my sister in Christ? What are you doing, my fellow church member? The Bible says that we were once not a people, but now we are a people, and that we have been built and are being built together into a household of God. That means that we are, by God's grace, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're not in a situation where we need to earn the right to speak to one another because Jesus Christ has earned the right on the cross. So there's an appeal to relational authority. You're my son. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my fellow church member. In Romans 15, 14, Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's always been a key part of even the Old Testament prophecies moving forward to the new covenant. It's always been a key part that brothers and sisters would walk with each other that the, that the over-reliance on a, on a clergy class for every problem would fade away. You have the spirit. You have the word. Believe it or not, this is a second quick point. Uh, believe it or not, Lemuel's activities were probably not super obviously wrong to him. Not in that culture. These were really just the kinds of things kings did. These were certainly not scandalous activities in his culture or especially not scandalous activities for people in his circle. What we see in this text is what I would call mission as a measurement. Not every activity that we're engaged in that is potentially distracting is sin and certainly not every activity that we're potentially engaged in is, is, uh, you know, is immoral Sometimes there are like morally ambigu ambiguous places that we wind up. And if you don't understand kind of the way that God does things, you'll think, well, if there's not a verse against it, I guess I'm okay. Or you'll, 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 you'll look at someone else and say, well, if there's not a verse against it, I guess they're okay. Well, I think that's a very good place to start. We don't want to become kind of spiritual bureaucrats, you know, measuring every little thing each one of us do. But I want to suggest to you that if you design your life merely by what's permissible, you won't achieve the mission. You won't fulfill the mission. 
If you, if, you, if you only organize your life by what is permissible, you won't be the thing that God has called you to be. She isn't actually, interestingly enough, measuring the morality of his actions against morality itself, let's say. She's measuring it against his called mission. These things are wrong because you're called to do these things over here and these things here won't get you there. It's far more than just sort of a legislative, like, is there a list? Show me the verse. It's like, I want to help you do the thing you're called to do. You're called to stand up for the poor, declare justice for the, for the hurting and so forth. And these things over here won't get you there. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, he's not saying all things and like, like literally all things. Like there's lots of things that Paul would have said were unlawful. He's talking actually about all the f- food rules following the, the revolution that was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying that all of that stuff is now lawful. And he's saying like, but so don't just think that way though. Ask a second question, not just is it lawful, but does it build up? What is he saying there? The mission that he's talking about there is the very next verse, love your neighbor. So everything we're talking about here depends on one another, on on each one of us knowing what the other person's mission is. I can't help you evaluate your life as to whether it's compatible with the mission God's called you to unless I know what the mission God's called you to. And here we have something all in common. The mission God has called all of us to is to love our neighbor as ourself and to love God with all of our being. Now, Lemuel's a king, and so he has a vocational expression of that that is legislative, and so he has to declare certain things. And so there's, there's part of the text that's about Lemuel's specific vocation. And your vocation will have love your neighbor expressions that are different from your neighbor, from the person to your left or to your right. But the truth is, is that we actually can see this super clearly. Your mission from God is to love people, point them to Jesus. That's what you use to measure the utility, the usefulness of the life choices you're making. And that's the thing that we can use when we walk with each other. You're called to love your neighbor. Let me help you evaluate the life you're living right now to see if that is getting you there. Now, for communion, this is really the part I've prayed for the most this week. I want to know, uh, do not raise your hand, I want to know if anyone here is concerned that they are stuck on Pleasure Island. It might be something that is explicitly sinful. It might simply be kind of a set of lifestyle choices that are potentially pretty self-centered. Is anyone here concerned that they're caught on Pleasure Island? In verse 8 through 9 of our text, Lemuel tells, uh, Lemuel's mom tells Lemuel, here's the job of a king. Open your mouth for the mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Well, there was one king who came who did that perfectly. If you feel as though you're caught on Pleasure Island, you are in the people group of someone who is poor and needy. Because you can't just get off of Pleasure Island by yourself. You might not even have the wisdom to see clearly You're in the category of the poor and needy. And so I want to end by letting King Jesus, letting his words speak over you. So what I'd like to ask you to do is just in a posture of prayer, bow your heads, let the words of Jesus from Luke 4 speak over you. You think you're caught on Pleasure Island. You're worried that you're not actually free to fulfill the mission God's given you. Let the words of Jesus Christ, the King of kings speak over you now. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now listen, friends. Poor and needy friends. Pleasure Island friends. Listen, listen. Listen to Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you feel like you're stuck? Do you feel like you're imprisoned? The spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus and he has good news for you. He has sent, he has been sent by God to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at freedom, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You feel oppressed? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord God, I pray for my friends sitting in these seats this morning who through your Holy Spirit have a feeling of unease. I don't care that they're uneasy. That's often way better than we realize. Uh, I don't ask you, God, to make them feel e at ease. I do ask God to make them see through the eyes of faith that the God of the universe took on flesh and died a horrific death to pay for the very sins that entangle and weigh them down. That Jesus Christ has paid the price to set the captives free. Lord God, please, through your spirit in a way that only you can, convince them of the justice of Christ on their behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. To introduce communion,